You're listening to the second lesson in A Tour Through John. Last time we introduced the book and went about halfway through the introduction, the prologue of John. I know that uh, some of us are in the habit of skipping the introductions of books. Many books have uh, kind of a foreword by the author. There may be a preface and an intro. I'll just tell you, as a teacher and as a, a longtime student, uh, that's not a good idea to skip those parts. In fact, many of the most important parts of a book will be found in the introduction, in the preface, maybe the back cover, um, uh, certainly in the conclusion. There's a science to reading. Uh, to understand John's gospel, we're going to be looking at everything else he explains, everything else he sets forth about Jesus in light of those opening 18 verses. Okay, so let's focus and uh, we'll pick it up where we left off. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to that which was his own and his own people did not accept him. Well, there's tremendous irony here, isn't there? Jesus comes to the earth. It's just not, it's not that he, he's God alone. It's that everything that exists came into being through him. These people wouldn't be here apart from him. His role in creation, it's tremendous irony. It'd be like a, a playwright walking onto the stage. The actors mock him. Or the architect visits the building site to see how it's going, and the builders will not let him come in. Or children mock their parents, or creatures mock their creator. As a Jew descended from the tribe of Judah and the house of David, Jesus came to his own people. But he was rejected. Now, his own people, you could also say, are humans. Um, I'm not sure that's quite the right interpretation, because that would be like saying he came to his own species. You know, he came to the human species, not the, um, you know, not the giraffes or, or the uh, cockroaches. I, I doubt that's what it means. I think we're talking here about uh, Judaism. Jesus wasn't accepted. It was not. What does that mean? Well, his message was rejected. In John 12, 47 and 48, key verses every Christian should know. Accepting Jesus means accepting his message. If we reject his words, we reject him. And if we accept his words, that's what it means to receive Jesus. Receiving Christ simply means saying, yes, I will obey your words. His message was rejected. Now, this doesn't mean that you know, people didn't say a prayer. Now, they didn't bow their heads so they didn't receive Jesus. That's a very modern doctrine, not even 200 years old. The doctrine of accepting Jesus lacks biblical foundation. Or you could put it this way. In... Uh, in the New Testament, the sinner's prayer is called baptism. In baptism, you, 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 you're asking for forgiveness. You're asking God to forgive you. So there is a, a point at which we come into Christ. Let's continue, verse 12. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Okay, so here's the contrast. Some people did not receive him. That is, they rejected his identity. Others did receive him. And this now becomes very clear that we're not talking about a prayer. Nor are we even talking about salvation directly because it says if they believed in his name, then they had the power to become children of God. Believing in his name doesn't make us instantaneously his sons and daughters. 
but it means we're pointed in the right direction. And that birth, that rebirth, new birth, is not of blood. Bloods, in the Greek it's plural, and that word could even be translated drops of blood. Um, bloods in the King James, but born not of blood. So it's not a, a genetic thing. It's not from the, uh, you know, something you get from your grandparents. Not born of the will of the flesh, um, either our own determination or the will of someone else trying to make us do the right thing, or the will of man, but of God. So believing in his name means trusting Christ, not ourselves, not trusting religion or church or other people, or even our own holiness, our religiosity, believing in his name to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Believing in his name means trusting Christ. And, and those who receive him, again, they're not actually children of God, but they're potentially his children. They have the power to become that. To become his children, they must be born again. Now, they're not born, again, uh, not born as God's children by blood, flesh, will, this new birth happens in baptism. And this will be explained two chapters from now. And kind of a funny thing. Let me just return to this point of church history one more time. In most of the centuries of Christian history, there was no dispute um, that baptism was the point at which someone became a child of God. Um, but kind of as an outgrowth of Protestantism and probably an overreaction to works righteousness, this, uh, this doctrine of the sinner's prayer emerged on the American frontier about the year 1835. I have a lot of good friends who are evangelicals, and some of them I respect tremendously for their life, and I learn from them. Others uh, really seem to have the wrong end of the stick and don't have a, a determination to live obediently to God. And I think that happens when our theology is off. It can affect our lifestyle. So here's what many of them say. They say, well, um, the sinner's prayer is, you know, that's, that's just faith. That's faith alone. But baptism is a work, which is actually quite humorous. <laughs> that criticism is humorous because the reality is exactly the opposite. The prayer is something you do. You have to do it. You're asked to do it. And then they ask you, did you do it? Whereas baptism is something that you don't do. It's something done to us. We are passive in baptism, but active in prayer. So, again, the new birth happens in baptism. And that new birth was taken so seriously. This will surprise some of you. If you read the second century Christian writings, this is well after the time of the New Testament, but we, we find out what people thought about life and death and even, well, after the afterlife. And there were quite a few Christians who thought that if you had never heard the word in your lifetime, that in the underworld, in the afterlife, you would have a chance to not only hear the gospel, but to be baptized in Hades, to be baptized in the underworld. That's how seriously people took the new birth, the birth of water and the spirit. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So this is a tremendous privilege to be born again. What an unbelievable blessing. Continue in verse 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses, 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Okay, so that's the end of the prologue, but just those last five verses deserve some comment. The Word becomes flesh. So God becoming human, that's the incarnation. A lot of Christians don't know that word, but it's a perfectly good word. We should use it. And he became flesh and lived among us. Um, If I get the chronology right, um, around 35 years on this earth, he pitched his tent or he tabernacled among us. So it says that he dwelled among us in some versions, right? Um, Lived among us, which is totally fine. It's just that the the original word is more interesting. Skene is the Greek word for tent. Actually, it contains the same consonants as the Hebrew shekhinah, that is the glory. Uh, so there's this alliteration there. And it's skene as tent, and eskenosen, he tented, he pitched his tent, he tabernacled, he lived among us. So this reminds us that just as God's spirit was among the Israelites, uh, as it came down into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, and later the temple, so he came down and uh, lived as Jesus and through Jesus for us. So that, that's a huge claim that the, the, the presence, you know, the Holy Spirit of God uh, comes down. Jesus' body is the new tabernacle. Uh, you'll, you'll see that when we get to chapter 2, verse 19. So the disciples saw his glory, but really they're seeing God's glory. There's no difference, uh, 14, 9. And this is the enfleshment or the incarnation, much denied by heretics, ancient and modern, who prefer Jesus to be either just a good man or a guru, or on the other side, some sort of spirit, you know, not quite fully real. But he was fully real, fully human, and full of grace and truth. John testifies to this. He's just a few months older than Jesus, but Jesus was infinitely before John. Now, this idea of Jesus' eternity um, is present in other places, too. Um, For example, the last verse of chapter 8, 858. For a good Old Testament passage, look at Micah 5.2. We all receive grace through Christ, verse 16, in many ways. Now, the original Greek doesn't have punctuation, but probably a colon should follow verse 16, which means that there are a couple of ways grace has been received. The law is given through Moses, so that's one way that grace was given. See, it's not that grace is opposed to the law. Another way, grace and truth also come through Christ, right? So there's no opposition between law and gospel. Contrary to the view of most Protestants today, both are instruments of grace, but there is a difference between the two ministries of these means of grace. Flesh versus stone, like in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, or in Ezekiel 11 and 36, uh, we see the, the, same, um, the same notion. So grace and truth. No one's ever seen God, but we do see God when we look at Jesus, verse 18. So no one has seen God. I know Moses uh, saw God, but really he saw the afterglow. He saw God's back. He saw the traces uh, in Exodus 34. Oh, and there's that time when the elders of Israel eat and drink, and they see God, and they don't die. But it's a vision of God. No one one could see God fully, you know, in his presence. Um, We'd be incinerated. Now, um, let me, let's spend a little bit more time on verse 18. Let me reread that. 
No one's ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This phrase, his only Son, or maybe his only begotten Son, has engendered a lot of controversy. In some way, he is unique. Jesus is uniquely God's Son. Now, if you're a Christian, you may be God's Son or a God's daughter. But this is a unique thing. You know, it's like um, Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac, but when it's time for the sacrifice, take your son, your, you know, the son you love, your only son, and, well, what about Ishmael? Well, Ishmael wasn't the son of promise, was he? Only begotten, and I, I know, I, I have a, an advantage over probably most of you listening to this, but when you read the, the New Testament uh, in Greek and you read the Old Testament in Greek, which is the way most Jews read it, um, this same word, uh, only begotten, monogenes, seems to correspond with the word beloved, agapitos. And there are all kinds of parallels here. Oh, th- that means um, loved, beloved, speaking of Isaac. So God tells Abraham to take your son, the one you love, and the, the, the use of the same adjectives in Genesis as in John identifies Jesus with Isaac. In fact, there are like nine or ten parallels between Isaac and Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. If you read Genesis 22, that's the chapter where Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah. In the Old Testament character podcast, you'll find this uh, explained. Um, uh, listen to the podcast on Abraham and Isaac. So Jesus is unique. We may be God's son, but we're not God's son in the same way that Jesus is um, because he was always God's son, even before he uh, existed in a, uh, a subordinate position to God. That is, yes, he's fully God. In terms of glory, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal. In terms of rank, no, no, no. The Father is first, and Jesus always submits to the Father. Jesus has made him known, those last few verses. Um, no one's ever seen God, but, but uh, God, the only Son, has made him known. He's explained him. If you're a big Bible student, you know the word exegesis. It's the same word there, exegesito. It means he's related, explained, reported, made known, revealed him. And Jesus makes God known. If we want to know God, we need to go through Jesus. We can learn things about God from nature and, and from uh, the Old Testament, for sure. But you really want to see God, you want to see in, in his grace and truth and the fullness, look at Christ. Okay, before we um, wrap it up and, and have a prayer, uh, let me read the prologue one more time. Actually, let me sum, sum up, and then we can read the prologue and pray. Again, this is a very different intro than we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Key points, well, in the beginning was the word, through which the world was created. Receiving Christ means accepting this word. The word became flesh. And the word explains God to us. So we need to listen and learn. It's not just a feeling or a vision. A uh, word is something that must be understood. I also see that God comes down to our level. I mean, presumably God is infinitely wise. Presumably None of us is even remotely close to him in what we know or in goodness or in the other area. But he comes down to our level. 
by, by penetrating our space, becoming one of us, a model for communication. Isn't this how we should communicate? Isn't this how we do communicate to our children or if we're talking to kids? You don't want to talk over their head. It also explains the nature of the Bible. The Bible is not technical. It's not scientific. It's not erudite. It's profoundly deep, like the ocean, but as simple as the ocean, too. You know, um, anyone can get involved and experience it. And also, it's a model for evangelism. Not talking above people's heads or past other people, but really striving to communicate and to connect. And that's what God does. And no other religion on the planet has anything like that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people didn't accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. Dear Lord, thank you so much for coming to our, down to our level, becoming one of us, revealing your will in a way that is easy to understand, although we never exhaust its depth, that's easy to present to others that will make the effort, although they may have uh, questions that we may not be able to answer now. We know that all the answers are in Christ, who's full of grace and truth and every mystery, all wisdom. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for that decision to, to come to our world as he emptied himself. Help us to be like that when we relate to other people, when we don't feel like relating, when we want to be quiet and alone. In our evangelism, to push ourselves to be Christ-like, to create that bridge. And we have all this incredible knowledge and information and excitement and memories and feelings, and it's just your glory. We don't know how to communicate that to others, so let us take Christ as our example. Uh, give us strength this day in Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to this uh, second podcast. Uh, tomorrow, we'll continue um, in John one nineteen, and as we continue to work our way through this incredible chapter. Thanks for listening.